This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I wrote the book in the way of real time, where it was me reacting to what was going on in the investigation and the information as it was coming out. Me investigating the investigation to see what it is that they actually knew or what they didn't know in this case about who had done it or even the crimes themselves. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. By now, most of you know the story of the Delphi murders. Actually, this wasn't a case I had kept up with, so that's why this episode is so interesting for me. My guest is Nick Edwards. He's the host of the True Crime Garage podcast, and he's also an author. Nick wrote a book about the murders of Libby and Abby in 2017, and it's called The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge. Nick told me a lot of things about the case that I didn't know. So I guess let's start with the victims because that's always the most important thing to me. And I think probably to you too. You called her Libby. Is that how we should go with Liberty? Should we go with Libby? Yeah, Liberty German and Abigail Williams are our two young girl victims. Just teenagers, very typical middle America teenagers, best friends. I cannot express that enough. They were so close that they were the type that if you saw one without the other and you knew them, your first question is, where is Libby or where is Abby? You just expect to see them side by side all of the time. And yeah, that's what they're best known as is Libby and Abby, Abby and Libby. So the way that this story all starts, for those that don't know anything about this case, you have two girls, young teenage girls, the best of friends. They're dropped off early in the afternoon on an unseasonably warm day in February. Okay, so they go to this trail system, beautiful area. Best way to describe it would be this is like a park, you know, like a like a state park. So there's a trail system. And on that trail system, there's this old abandoned railroad bridge called the Monin High Bridge. You could show a picture of this bridge to 100 people and you're going to get 100 different thoughts on this bridge. Some may say, oh, it's a creepy old rickety old bridge. Others would say that looks like something out of a Bob Ross painting. So they're getting dropped off with the purpose of walking across this bridge. Now, I have a bit of trouble with heights. So as brave and tough as I think I am, I'd probably make it about five or six steps out onto that bridge and turn right around and get back on a solid ground. But this is an old abandoned railroad bridge, and it's sort of a rite of passage in this area, right? Like the teenagers, the young folks, they go out there and it's kind of, you go across it at some point when you're a young teenager and it's something you kind of brag about to your friends after you've done it. But it's a little dangerous, right? Well, yeah, I mean... Can you fall off this bridge? Yeah, they're, they're not rails. Oh. Um, so you could, you could fall off the side. I mean, this is just 
as teenager as it comes, right? The two girls, Libby had already gone across the bridge on at least one prior occasion. And so Abby was going to walk across the bridge and Libby was going to show her how. She was going to teach her friend, here's something I've done. Now it's your turn. I'm going to experience this with you. I'll bring my cell phone and we can take some pictures to to capture the moment. And unfortunately, there's evil out there on the trails that day while the girls are out there. And so the girls are supposed to be picked up sometime. It wasn't hard and fast time on what time to be picked up. It was going to be like 3, 3.30. So Libby's father, Derek, was going to be in the area. He, he had finished up some work task earlier that day. And the idea was Kelsey, the sister, would drop them off at the trailhead. They could run around, do whatever they're going to do. Again, the purpose of the trip was to go across the Monon High Bridge, take a couple pictures, and then Derek would pick them up sometime between 3 and 3.30 when he happens to be in the area. He gets there. He's texting his daughter. He doesn't hear. There's no reply. And so at some point, there becomes concern, and you have Libby's extended family out there searching high and low for the kids on the trails. They're going across the bridge. They're looking all over for the two of them. Now, any parent will tell you, it is not terribly uncommon for teenagers to be where they are not supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure that that was probably their thoughts that afternoon. You know what? I'm probably a little upset with these kids. They were supposed to be here at 3, 3.30. Sure enough, they're not here. These were good kids. Uh, so maybe that was a, a leap that was a little difficult for them to, to make. But you can see Mike Patty and Abby's mother on the 11 o'clock news out there in West Indiana. Hmm. And neither of them looked like panicked. You can tell they're concerned. It's dark now and it's getting cold out. It's February. It was warm that day, but it's going to be a cold night. You can tell they're concerned. You can hear it in their words and their voices and, and see it on their faces, but you can also tell they're not panicked yet. Hmm. You know, again, they're teenagers. They did have a fairly organized search for the girls that evening and night, but at some point they had to call off the search. This is rough terrain. You just talked about people falling off of the Monon High Bridge. That's certain a possibility. So at some point they call off the search. The sheriff received a lot of criticism for that. But they couldn't do cell phone, no cell phone activity. Could they even trace that at that point? They had pinged her phone a couple of times, but this is a very rural area. Hmm. And what was happening, from my understanding, is that the pings actually suggested that she was in town oh. and moving around. But from the way it's been explained to me multiple times, is that in that area at that time, if you were to walk from one side of your house to the other side of the house, your, your phone may ping off of three different towers. It's just hmm. the lay of the land. So that wasn't useful. And actually bad, right? Because maybe they weren't panicked enough to look, as you're suggesting, look in the places where they were last seen. Instead, they thought maybe they'd be in town. Well, and one thing that, that hurt badly, too, is her grandparents attempted to do the Find My Phone feature. Mm. It had not been loaded. So she had did a factory reset. Libby had done a factory reset on her cell phone, I think, just a couple weeks prior. And some of those apps, you have to reload them to get them up and running. And she had never reloaded that app. 
So the sheriff calls off the search for the night. It's getting cold. They're hoping that they just sort of decided to be rebellious for once and go to a friend's house secretly or go somewhere and they're warm and safe. And they'll pop up in the morning and say, sorry, please forgive us. We're grounded for a week and that's it. And that's not what happened. Right. And I think, you know, some people had expressed that they thought maybe worst case scenario, one of them had twisted or broken an ankle and the other one wouldn't leave them. But the the difficult thing is you are out there searching, you are out there yelling and calling their names. They would have been vocal and had the ability to yell back. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got firefighters. We we had a a decent amount of people out there that evening, about 6 a.m. the following day a very organized search effort is put together by the sheriff's department and firefighters. And it's about 12 to 12.15 that day that they find the girls having been murdered out in the woods, unfortunately. How far were they from the bridge? They were about a a little more than a quarter of a mile from the end of the bridge. So okay. from my understanding, what you do is you, you walk across that bridge, you, you have a very quick celebration, and then there's really nothing but private property on the other side of that Monin High Bridge. So the teenagers just turn around and go back. Um, there's really not a whole lot to do on that other side. Unfortunately, that's where they were intercepted by this this evil individual who then corrals them and essentially abducts them and moves them further into the woods. And then they were killed a brief time after he encountered them on the bridge. You know, in a case like this, I talked to Paul Holes, you know, he's my co-host on Buried Bones. I talked to Paul a lot about the citizen sleuth and then sort of the anger focused at investigators. It feels like almost immediately in a case like this, you don't know what you're doing. You're screwing everything up. You're hiding information and all of this. And Paul just said with the Golden State Killer case, it was terrible. I mean, he really, he had to stop communicating with some people and none of the information that he was given was particularly helpful. Do you think that this was like an immediate knee-jerk response from people who were following this case early on? Because it seems like the first strike against investigators is they didn't continue the search. So was it sort of downhill in the eyes of a citizen sleuth at this point? Well, yeah. And the thing is, I, I think in this situation, it was a case that was so captivating that it drew in a lot of people that didn't even have any experience as a citizen sleuth. You know, they they had maybe never followed a case before. And so, look, we can point the finger, and that's, unfortunately, that's going to happen. So, especially in this type of case. So, what you have here is, and I say this, I've said it a hundred times on True Crime Garage, and I'm sure that I'll say it a hundred more. When you go to a community, especially a smaller town like Delphi, Indiana, and you kill a child, That's not a crime against that kid, just that kid, or against their family, or against where that kid went to school. That is a crime against the entire community. That's how it is. And this community banded together immediately. Now, what ended up happening is people want their pound of flesh. When something like this happens, that's just human nature. People want to very quickly identify why and who is responsible. Where's the bad guy? Mm -hmm. And any speed bump or any slower route into finding that individual, it upsets the masses. And in this case, knee-jerk reaction, yes, 100,000%. And and the thing was, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was that there were so many things, so much absurd, crazy stuff being said online and on social media 
that I'm here tearing my hair out going, let's be reasonable people. Let's let's come back down to earth yeah. and deal with this thing that's called, there's this wonderful thing called logic. Let's try to apply it here uh, in this case. And so where you have people get ready to get out the torches and pitchforks going, well, they called off the search, clearly shows they don't know what they're doing. That's common. Anytime there's somebody that's missing, it gets dark, it gets cold, they call off the search. That's just what happens. You don't, you, you, yes, you were there to save one or two, mm -hmm. but you're not going to risk one or two more in the process. If, if people stayed out there that night and still searched against, you know, it's not like the sheriff is saying, go home or you will be arrested. No, the sheriff is saying, we're, we are done here for the night. We will reconvene at daybreak tomorrow, 6 a.m. They were out there organized and ready to rock by 6 a.m. Yes. Yeah, so the, the people reacting the way they did, you know, we end up getting two different composite sketches of the, of the suspect throughout the course of this, this investigation. People were all up in arms about that. I've seen that in multiple cases. It's not uncommon to have more than one composite sketch, especially if a investigation lasts years. A lot of the things that people were upset with are things that we've seen in a bunch of other cases. Yeah. What was different here, though, was the finger pointing, the calling out a specific person online or on social media that had nothing to do with the crime at all. I mean, again, one major reason why I wrote the book was to separate not just fact from fiction, to separate fact from all the complete craziness out there. People openly saying that the mayor was the killer. Oh. People openly saying that the superintendent of Indiana State Police, Doug Carter, who was the champion of justice in this case, that he was the killer. People saying that Tobe Lesenby, the sheriff, was the killer. People saying that Mike Patty, the, the grandfather of one of the girls, was the killer. So it was through that aggravating aspect of the case that just kept nudging me and nudging me and nudging me to keep covering it on True Crime Garage speak for the truth, and put pen to paper, write the book, The Delphi Murders. Well, let's go back to the day that the two girls were discovered. If we could just sort of summarize the discovery, who discovered them, what that whole scene was like, and then how do you get into an investigation after this? So what's the scene like when they find them? Well, they, they released very little information, and still to this day, even after the arrest, have released very little information. And some of those details don't help to lead us to the suspect anyway. So they're they're not always necessary to discuss. But on that day, yeah, the, the two girls were found by one of the search parties. And this was a, a around noon, about 12.15 that afternoon. They're discovered immediately based off of the discovery. Police know we're dealing with foul play. They didn't go into details, but obvious signs. All of these years later, in fact, it wasn't until June of 2023 that we learned that they were killed with a, a sharp instrument or mm. sharp weapon. That's obviously going to tell the, the investigators that we're talking about foul play immediately. They did make the announcement at some point or the statement months after they were found that they believed everything was done and over with by 5 p.m. And again, they're releasing so little information that that's what a lot of the book is about is me. I, I've through true crime garage and through my charity work that I've done, I've reviewed. And again, I'm, I'm not law enforcement. I'm not retired law enforcement, but I've reviewed hundreds of cases and there is some experience that comes with that. And so I could look at their words and look at their statements and deduce for myself what it is that they knew about the killer, what it is that they knew from the evidence that they're seeing about what went down that day. 
and also how they were going to pursue finding and identifying the killer. So that's that's what a lot of the book is, is me going through their information, through their press conferences, and reading between the lines and sharing that with the with the reader. And so on that day, what we learned very quickly in this inv- investigation that is very different from other murder investigations is that Libby, God bless her, she was so brave that she captured the killer's image and voice on her cell phone. Hmm. And that is partly what led to people being more upset about this case. They're going, you got the killer's picture, you got the killer on video, you got the killer talking, recorded, talking to the girls, and we can't find this guy. Either there's a cover-up or you guys don't know what you're doing. And here's the thing. At the end of the day, it wasn't a great picture. It wasn't a great video. You could use that video or that picture to go, okay, well, this person and this guy and that guy, they are not the guy. Right. But it's it was not a good enough picture that it's go- that you could look at another person and go, yep, 100%, that's our guy. No, it the video pretty much told us we're looking for a very average looking white male. Yeah. In Indiana. <laughs> In Indiana, exactly. And so we we could hear his voice and Libby was so brave to capture all of that information there that day, risking putting herself at, at further harm. Because keep in mind, when he approaches them, they don't know what they're in for. Well, that's my question. Why is she recording? What is on the recording? And at what stage does she feel threatened? And that's why she's recording him? Or do we not know why? Was she recording and then she heard a voice and swung around and just started recording this guy? So that's that's very interesting. We can't say with any certainty why she decided to record. I think a couple things probably took place. Either one, they had seen him or encountered him prior and then see him again later. And it kind of spooked them a little bit and, and thought, well, here's this weird guy. Maybe I should just record him for a bit. Let's keep in mind, too, she had just taken a, a photograph that was sent out on Snapchat of Abby walking across the bridge. So she may have had her phone in hand when she first notices him on the bridge. So she sends that out on Snapchat, and this is at like 2.13 p.m. So we know everything's fine at 2.13 p.m. After that, this man, they see him walking across the bridge. And earlier I had talked about the state of the bridge, I believe, played a factor in us having difficulty identifying him. Well, that's because he's looking down as he's, she's filming him while he's on the bridge, but he's looking down to make sure he doesn't lose his footing, make a wrong step. And I mean, he could fall off the bridge himself. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing here because she filmed him for, her phone is capturing 43 seconds of video and or audio. We, the public, we only get to to hear or see a very small clip of that that video. Hmm. So later we hear guys down the hill. That's the killer's voice. We also see a very brief clip of him taking like one and a half steps on the on the Monon High Bridge. And he's he's looking again, he's looking down. So she could have, they could have encountered him prior on the trails and thought, oh, this is weird. This Here's this guy again, and maybe just filmed it for, for that purpose. We do later learn that they're unaware of a major threat until after she was already filming. What I think happened is she probably already had her phone out mm-hmm. because she had just documented Abby going across the bridge. And it was kind of a an instinct, a natural instinct to just, 
hit the button again and start filming this guy. Now, we do know Libby was being raised by her grandparents, Mike and Becky Pat. And what they have said to the media is that their opinion is that for whatever reason, this guy they probably just thought was weird for whatever reason Mm -hmm. and just was going to take a picture or film him for a few seconds and then show it later to grandma and grandpa. Like, look at this weird guy we saw at the park today. Uh, You know, just kind of Mm -hmm. very innocent. But that 43 seconds, it was never released in its entirety to the public. And on a portion of that, we can only speculate what else is on that video. But at one point, one of the girls does say to the other, gun. Just like, gun. Hmm. And so at some point, he is showing them that he's going to be taking control of them in the situation. And they are aware of it. And one voices that to the other one. Now, again, they were already recording at this time. At some point, I believe that she concealed her phone, either just kind of held it Mm -hmm. down to her side or put it in a pocket because that's where I think the audio of the killer comes from Hmm. because he's much closer when he says guys down the hill. It sounds like he's standing right next to them. Mm -hmm. She must have rushed and put that phone away real quickly. Whether she intended to have it keep running or not, we can't say. But I've had people ask me, does that video, did that video hurt or help the investigation? And the best answer I can give is we need to give credit where credit is due. This is something very brave that this little girl did. Yeah, This was a choice that she made. And she did this and it took five and a half years to make an arrest in this case. Hmm. I'm a firm believer, if you ask me if this video helped or hurt the investigation, it took five and a half years with the video to make an arrest. How many years do you think it would have been without the video? Why would it have hurt? Because it made it so much more mysterious that you have all of these people speculating and blowing it up even bigger? Or what's the reason why it would be negative in the case? The negative is that the investigation gets inundated with tips. And of course, only, you know, one or or a very small few are responsible for what happened that day. So we're talking just months into the investigation And they have to turn over the tip line to the FBI because the state police cannot handle the volume of of calls and tips that they're receiving. So at one point, I want to say this was like six or eight months into the investigation. Mm -hmm. They had said they had received over 47,000 tips. Wow. And so I can only imagine how many that they ultimately received over the course of five, five and a half years before they arrested anybody. I guess, you know, that would be the only way that you go, well, maybe it it hurt the investigation. I, I think, if anything, it slowed it down because now you have all these people that, that need to be looked at because they <laughs> you get tips and some of these people you're getting multiple tips on. Did the police make any mistakes? Sure. And these things, a lot of the the movements and a lot of the actions done by law enforcement in this case were probably heavily debated behind the scenes on, okay, do we do this or do we not do this? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I don't like, and, and but we've seen it dozens and dozens of times, unfortunately, is right away, of course, media is peppering the officials with questions and they're attempting to do some kind of 
information release the day after the girls were found. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, these officers weren't given much information at all. But the question that I always hate because I hate the answer is, oh, you said this is foul play. So is there a threat to the community? And, you know, police, they always want to try to calm the masses, right? You don't want to send everybody into panic mode. And they said, no, we don't believe that there's any direct threat to the community. Mm -hmm. Okay, I get what you're trying to do, guys, but um, we have somebody out there that is killing children. There is a threat to the community. Yeah. Tell me what investigators have to work with once they find the girls' bodies the next day, what are the physical clues? I'm assuming they're taking swabs, right? They're taking for sexual assault. And is the cell phone, is Libby's cell phone found quickly? Yeah, so they, they recover the cell phone. They are aware, obviously, of the video and the audio before the public is. They held on to that information for a little bit. They were originally trying to get the guy seen in the video to come forward. They were taking the approach of this guy, we believe he's a witness or may have seen something out on the trails that day. He's he's just the guy that we want to talk to. Hmm. And then after about a week, you know, they come out and say, no, this is our suspect. We believe that this is the person that's responsible for these two murders. Now you ask, what what do they have to work with? Well, we, we later learn what they have to work with. But at the time, they weren't saying anything. It was over six years after the murders that we even learned how the girls were killed. Hmm. So they were trying to keep as much close to the vest as they could, hoping that when they did speak to the right person, that they would start going down roads with different information that have not been released yet. And the investigators would know we're talking to the right guy. He knows mm -hmm. too much about this this case or the crimes uh, that he has to be the guy. So early on, they executed a search warrant on one of the neighbors. The girls were actually found on private property. They were walked from the, the edge of that bridge the end of the bridge over on the private property where they were assaulted and killed. And they executed a search warrant for the owner of that property. His name was Ron Logan. Mm -hmm. I do think that some of the investigators behind the scenes thought that he was probably responsible, but we would later learn that, that no, he wasn't. And this was a case too, that they never really cleared anybody, right? They, they would look at somebody, look at them pretty deep and, and take a good look at them. And the public would become aware of that, but they never officially publicly cleared anybody that they had looked at. They, they weren't closing any doors in this case. And it was and remains the biggest case in, in Indiana since the crime occurred. And so there were a lot of eyes on this case and, I, and a lot of scrutiny. What happened, if we're skipping ahead, between 2017, five and a half years later, for them to then be able to make an arrest? What was the big change? Well, they realized that somebody that they had spoke to back in 2017 that at one time was treated as more of a witness probably should be looked at as a suspect. Because, look, you get 50,000 tips come in saying, this is your guy. He looks just like the picture of bridge guy that you guys released to the public. The problem with 99% of those people that the masses are providing to law enforcement is that they weren't there. They were not in the area that day. Mm -hmm. One thing that we know has to have taken place is the killer had to have been there on the trails that day. He had to be in Delphi, Indiana, on that Monday afternoon. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mm -hmm. So this individual, a, a man named Richard Allen, had spoke to a 
I keep calling him a resource, a natural resource officer, because that's what we call him in in my neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. But I believe this individual is referred to as a conservation officer. So to be clear, like, because now the investigators are taking, even after the arrest, they're still taking a lot of blame and criticism here because people are going, well, you talked to the guy five and a half years ago. What's the problem? He was right there all this time. Now, to be clear, it does not sound like Richard Allen went marching into the sheriff's department and said, let me speak to your homicide detective. No, it sounds to me like he might have been out somewhere and spoke to this conservation officer and said, look, I was out on the trails that day. This is what I was doing. This was the time I arrived. This is the time I left. Who did you see while I was out there? Well, I saw a couple of girls, but they weren't the victims. They were a couple of the other girls. Oh, okay. And so a note was made of this information. Hmm. They are reviewing all of their information years later. In fact, this was late summer of last year. And somebody goes, wait a second. Has anybody followed up and talked to this guy that says he was there that day? And they realize, no, nobody's talked to him a second time. Nobody's called him into the sheriff's department. Nobody's had proper investigators talk to him. And when they do that, that's when they go, hold on, this guy makes for a far better suspect than he does potential witness after we've talked to him. Tell me about Richard Allen. What do we know about him? He's a short guy that that has lived in Delphi for uh, at least six or seven years before the murders took place. Worked at a CVS, so he's somebody that would have been known to other people there. He had a concealed weapons license uh, for several years. According to him, he took regular walks on those trails. He lived about a five-minute drive from there, uh, so not not far at all. And by his own admission, he was there that day on the trails. What we don't know, what we didn't know is that they were looking for a gun. Hmm. And, and they were looking for whatever sharp instrument killed the girls. And In their interview, in their official interview with Richard Allen and his wife late last year, in late summer of last year, they learned that he, yes, he owns firearms. Yes, he owns knives. And the ones that he owned in 2017 are still in his house to this day. And so they rushed out and got a search warrant for his property and searched his home that night after speaking with him and his wife. Because they were worried that, oh, this guy, through our questioning of him in our interviews, we might have tipped him off that he is a suspect. And now he may feel the need to get rid of some of that stuff that he has at his house. Let's go and get it now before he has the opportunity to. So what had happened was they had found a a bullet. Now, this was a live round. This was not a shell casing. This was a bullet that had been, for lack of a better term, racked through a gun. And when that happens, if it's a live round and you're racking it again, so you you can rack it to load it into the chamber to be fired. If you hit the rack again, it's going to expel that bullet out this typically out the side of the gun, and then it's going to load another bullet. Mm-hmm. So what happened for whatever reason, either he purposely racked it to gain control of the girls at some point, or during the course of a scuffle. It accidentally gets racked through the gun, or maybe he was unaware that he had already loaded, you know, loaded the gun mm-hmm. and and decided to rack it. But they they were not killed by a gun. But what they found at the scene, very close to one of the victims' bodies, is this 
bullet that had been racked through a gun and it had it had markings on it that would tell us what kind of gun, what gun this bullet came from. So they're not doing ballistics like we're used to, where where somebody shoots somebody and they they have rifling and right striations. Exactly. So in this situation, this is a microscope comparison by an expert, and this person is saying, "Okay, this gun we confiscated from Richard Allen's home, we racked the bullet through there." And it has the same markings as the bullet that we found at the murder scene. Hmm. And Richard Allen's own words are, no, I've never lent that gun to anyone. It's never been out of my possession. And no, I've never been on that piece of land where the girls were found. So that statement to police has set a very, a very high hurdle for his defense team to clear when this thing gets to a trial. What about DNA? Well, if they have Richard Allen's DNA at the murder scene, they've not told us that. Now, the court documents that have been released, and some of them, not all have been released, but some of them have, the court documents do not suggest that that's what they were seeking when building their case against Richard Allen. Doesn't that seem odd to you? Well, yes. It's easy to speculate that this is some type of sexually motivated crimes. And so one would believe that there was some kind of sexual assault. You could have trace DNA. There's all kinds of, you know, DNA that we could have at the scene. Now, we do have law enforcement on record saying, yes, we have DNA in this case. Yes, we have fingerprints in this case. We just don't know if they're the suspects. Hmm. And so keep in mind, it was a search party that found them. And at some point, you have law enforcement, paramedics, you have all kinds of people in and out of this outdoor scene. An outdoor murder scene is completely different from an indoor murder scene where it's a controlled environment. So that made the the situation difficult for law enforcement. And I look, do I think Richard Allen is some kind of brilliant criminal? No, but I, I think that he just got lucky and he didn't leave his DNA there that day. Because one thing that took place is they finally solved the April Tinsley case from the from the 80s. This was the murder of a little girl, and they had DNA. They had suspect DNA in that case. And what they did was they went the genealogy route with April Tinsley, and that didn't take place until after Abby and Libby were killed in Delphi, Indiana. So I was of the belief that those two things were not completely a coincidence, Hmm. that they went down that route to solve what is probably one of the most well-known and and worst crimes in Indiana state history, the murder of April Tinsley. They used genealogy, DNA detection work to to solve that case. I don't think it was a coincidence. I think they went down that road and thought, we might have to go down that road here for the Delphi case. Again, if they have Richard Allen's DNA at at the murder scene, that's something we'll learn at trial. But it doesn't appear that that's the case. Is this confirmed as sexual assaults, both of them, or no? Not confirmed sexual assaults. Um, but the other thing, too, these guys that commit these types of crimes, they can be of a sexual nature or sexually motivated without it being obvious to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could play a big part in this case. The other thing, too, to keep in mind with how dangerous this type of individual is, I'm not saying that that he would have morphed into a serial killer or went out even did this again, but it's it's difficult to believe that he would not have. And the fact of the matter at the end of the day is Libby filming him. Can you imagine 
what he experienced when he's watching the news and realizes, holy shit, they got my picture. Holy shit, they got my voice. That little girl saved lives that day. If there ever was a one to go out and do something like this again, we could have had that situation here. And I firmly believe that any idea that this guy would have thought about doing this a second time was completely squashed by this brave little girl and her actions that day. There does seem to be a lot of missing information that prosecutors and investigators have held on to, and I'm sure that does drive people crazy. How, as a citizen sleuth, are people able to help, legitimately help investigators without hindering an investigation? It seems to me to be able to provide actual, real, confirmed clues and keeping it in the media, but not this wild, crazy speculating that is hurtful and so unhelpful. Well, and you had said knee-jerk reaction earlier, and I think that's the thing to to hone in here, to, that, that people need to not just react immediately, right? If, if you, got a, you got a picture of somebody you think might be responsible, do a little bit of the work yourself. Can, can you put that individual in Carroll County on that day? If the picture of the guy you have, he's born and raised in Hawaii and has lived most of his adult life in Hawaii, do a little work to see if you can put that guy in the state of Indiana. So as far as citizen sleuthing goes, in this case, one thing that they did, which was really good, and I hope that this carries on to other cases where there's a lot of tips coming in, they kept reminding the public that they prefer, they strongly prefer that you email your tip rather than call it in okay? because it creates a paper trail. It's something that they can return to. And guess what? When you call in a tip, your tip is open to interpretation from the person that takes the tip and writes down the information and catalogs the information. If you yourself are typing that out on an email, that's firsthand. That's coming from you as a potential witness or you as a person with with some potential insider knowledge. Mm -hmm. So that's documentation, documented information that they can return to. And it's not open to interpretation from, from phoning something in. So look, the public certainly helped and did hurt in this case. But you can't fault people for, at the end of the day, wanting to do something to help. I don't retaliate too much when people had bad information. It's more of the it's more of the stuff that was just completely sort of out of bounds and and people saying things about the family like the families are weird or whatever. It's like no, it's there was nothing weird about any of these families. And I, I said this a couple times in the book. In the end, the way that these family members conducted themselves with such strength, courage and grace in the face of, you know, one's character is best judged in the time of tragedy. I cannot think of any greater tragedy than this. Mm-hmm. And to see the way that these individuals handled themselves in a weird way, they were teaching us how to be strong through this, teaching the rest of the community how to be strong through this. So it's one of those cases that, unfortunately, we sit here all these years later, we don't have a whole lot of the information, which makes it all that more mysterious. But I do hope now that since there has been arrest, the public is still crying out and screaming, we want more information, we want more information. No, let's stop that right now because what we will have, what we are going to be faced with soon is trying to get adjudication in this case, trying to get a conviction in this case. 
And I do not want to be setting the table for a hung jury, a mistrial, or lining up a bunch of appeals for the guilty party in this situation. They very likely have the guy that's responsible. Let's let this thing work itself out the appropriate way and the correct way in the courts. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.